All right, so our study this evening will be Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 6, Sections 1 and 2. So we're starting a, a brand new chapter in the Confession uh, of the Fall of Man, of Sin, and of the Punishment Thereof. And the Westminster Divines here are really going to, uh, from here on to Chapter 18, are going to talk about uh, the very various aspects of salvation, and just like the Apostle Paul in Romans, they're going to begin with the need of salvation. Romans is, is such a paradigmatic letter for understanding these core issues, which is why uh, for many of you, when you had middle school, Sunday school with me, I drilled that outline of the book of Romans with you every single week while we did that study because it is the paradigm for understanding these essential core issues. And in Paul's letter to the Romans, after he gets through his introduction and greetings, which are, of course, rich and worthy of study, he begins the body of his letter with what we might call the bad news of chapter 1, verses 18 to 30, that the wrath of God abides from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. This is the message that we might call that of condemnation. And in this chapter of the confession, what we're going to see is that uh, not only are we sinners, but we are far worse than we think. Um, this chapter is going to cut against the grain of much of the sensibilities of the modern culture that desires to affirm uh, the basic goodness of humanity. Uh, modern culture, uh, e is not uh, averse to the notion that we all have sin in our lives. Uh, they'll even use that term and they'll use uh, the language of the need for atonement and, and all of these things are, are present. However, what they don't understand is that our condition is so desperate that there is actually nothing we in and of ourselves can do to solve it. We need one that is outside of ourselves. It's often said, and I, I think it comes from a well-meaning place, that the, the offensive part of the gospel is the declaration that, that we are sinners in need of repentance. I understand what they mean by that, and there's a sense in which nobody likes that message of being told they're a sinner, uh, but the world seems readily uh, willing to accept that, especially when it comes to issues of, of, of racial tensions, even in our own country. People are willing to accept the concept that we have sin. The offensive part of the gospel uh, is, as Paul would say in Romans 9, 32 and 33, that Jesus himself is the offensive part. He is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Because the, the reality, uh, as we'll see as we study this chapter on sin, is that it's not just that we're not perfect. It's true that we are not perfect, but it's, it's worse than that. It's not that there's a few little things that we need to touch up here or there. What we're talking about is a totally corrupt nature, a nature that is at fundamental rebellion against our Creator. I've... Uh, heard from a couple of friends in the last few months, people that I haven't talked to uh, since high school, which is 10 or 15 years ago, that, that are wrestling with their faith in large part because despite growing up in the church, they have an unbiblical 
doctrine or maybe even an anti-biblical doctrine of sin and and maybe you do as well and it is not the is not the case in reality nor is it biblical teaching that by virtue of committing sins one becomes a sinner rather because we are born dead in our trespasses and sin therefore we commit sins Again, it is not that we commit sins that makes us a sinner, but rather it's because we are sinners that we commit sins. And the illustration that I often use of this is um, my children love apple juice. And apple juice comes from apples, and apples come from apple trees. Now, it is not that the tree was an undetermined type of tree and it was made an apple tree in the moment that the first apple sprouted forth on its branches. Rather, it produced that apple because from the time the seed was planted in the ground, it was uh, an apple tree and it would only ever produce things in accord with its nature. The, the idea is the same with our sin. It is not our sins that make us Sinners, they identify us as sinners. They help us to recognize that we're sinners in the same way that we are able to identify an apple tree or an orange tree by the fruit that it bears. But it is not the production of that fruit that makes it so. Rather, the production of that fruit is a revelation of what it is. Uh, the Apostle James would say something very, uh, very much along these lines in his epistle in James chapter 1, uh, verses 14 and 15. James writes, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It starts from wicked desires on the inside. And as we look at the Confessions teaching, on the fall of man and sin, uh, we'll be looking at several uh, Bible texts to highlight the Confessions teaching. We're really going to look at uh, just two uh, points tonight from the opening uh, paragraphs of chapter 6 of the Confession. We'll look at the origin of sin from Genesis chapter 3, and then we'll look at the effects of sin as they're laid out in Genesis chapter 3. So first, the origin of sin. Let me begin by reading from the Confession, and then we'll flip over to Genesis chapter 3 and look at the opening verses. All right, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6, paragraph 1. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin, God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. So this, this paragraph is summarizing the biblical teaching on the origin of sin, and now we'll read uh, from the scriptures the actual account of that. This comes from Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, 
Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Loin now, notice in the very beginning of this verse, uh, this section, how does verse 1 describe the serpent to begin this uh Excuse me, how does rather how does verse one describe the serpent's beginning of this conversation? He begins by questioning the reliability of the word of God. Did God actually say? Uh, Derek Kidner writes, the tempter begins with suggestion rather than argument. The incredulous tone, so God has actually said, is both disturbing and flattering. It smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment, close quote. And when he speaks of the incredulous tone, it's, 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 he's suggesting that it's, it's hard to believe that God would dare say such a thing, that he would dare put any restriction, let alone this one strict one on his creation. And he smuggles in the, the idea that, that Eve and by extension Adam, have the right or the authority to determine uh, for themselves what is good and what is evil, even within the command. The suggestion is that God is harsh and selfish. What gives him the right? Now, this is such a, a vital passage. We're going to camp out here for a moment. Note also the wickedness of the question and the one doing the question. The one doing the questioning. How does verse 1 describe the serpent? It says that he is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the reason that that's worth bringing up here is that the serpent is made by God. He is dependent upon God for his very existence. And now he is turning around and, and casting doubt on God's character. Uh, imagine that you are on a sports team and you have um, a, a coach that has uh, introduced you to the sport and then he stays with you personally after practice to do one-on-one uh, -on -one personal training and coaching and, and he gives you all the best equipment and he provides you all the best nutrients and he gets you into the, uh, the best condition to compete. And then a week before the big game, you sign up to play for the other team. And not only that, but in the week leading up, you, you do several interviews that demean your trainer and say that he, he worked you too hard and he did not provide what was necessary and, and you, you maligned his character while using the very gifts and talents and skills that he has given you uh, uh, against him. That would be horribly disloyal to the one that has given you everything. And it's not a perfect analogy for the situation here, but it does illustrate that the, the serpent who is dependent on God for everything is now trying to turn everything that he has 
against the God on whom he depends for his very existence. God's creature, whom he gave life, is now using that life to try and to try and stage a rebellion against him. And he's staging a rebellion by slandering the very one who has given him everything. Look again at verses 2 to 5. Eve here responds. And it's not a great response, but it is serviceable for now. Notice what the serpent does. He's not only implying that the God's authority to make restrictions or casting harsh harshness for the degree of those restrictions. Now he, he outright calls God a liar. Eve says, uh, we're allowed to eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the garden, just not this one. Because in the day that we eat there, we'll surely die. But the, serp but the serpent says, you will not surely die. That's not true. God lied to you. He made it up. And what's worse, he, he made it up to protect himself because in the day that you eat thereof, you will not surely die, but rather you will be like God. Knowing, determining for yourself what is good and what is evil. God was trying to protect and preserve his own status at your expense. Because he knows that if you eat this, you will be equal to him. You will be determining what's right and what's wrong. Uh, my old professor, Dr. Belcher, explains this phrase this way, that it's best understood as referencing the ability to discern for oneself what is good and what is evil. The issue concerns the source of knowledge and whether God is the ultimate source of knowledge or whether human beings take upon themselves the role of determining what is good and evil. By disobeying the command of God, Adam and Eve clearly assert their own moral autonomy to determine for themselves what is right and wrong. Instead of submitting to the authority of God's word to make them wise, they want to decide this issue for themselves. To act autonomously is to act like God, and we have seen this play out ever since Genesis chapter 3. Every issue that my friends who grew up in church struggle with uh, begins with not questioning whether or not the Bible teaches certain things, whether or not the Bible's teaching is correct. Is God right to say the things he does about sexuality? Is God right to say the things he does about gender roles? Is God right to say the things he does um, about, about officers in the church? And on and on and on and on and on we could go. The answer to that question is yes. When you create the universe and everything that's in it, you are right to determine how it is supposed to work. As a creature, we have no right to judge the creator. We are not equipped so to do. And of course, that temptation and the fruit of its, of its result we see every day. You know well what happened. In verse 6, we read that they ate of the fruit. They bought it. Adam and Eve agreed with Satan. They agreed with the serpent. And in that moment, they declared, I will be a better God for myself than God is. And that is the essence and the very heartbeat of sin. It is a refusal to honor God as God and to rather trust in my own wisdom. This is what Paul writes of in Romans chapter 1 
when he says, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And I want to notice one, one final thing about the depths of the depravity of this passage. Note that it flits, it flips the entire created order on its head in the very origin of sin. You see, God created man to have dominion over the creatures and to reflect the glory of God. And instead of man ruling creation for God's glory, man has opted instead to be ruled by creation to his own shame. Man is supposed to have dominion over all the animals of the earth, over all the, the livestock, over all of it. And instead of ruling over that and exercising that dominion to the authority to the to the glory of God. He is rather led into error by the creation that he's supposed to rule and reign over to his own shame. That's what we see. That's why they sow the fig leaves around themselves to cover their shame. This is the biblical doctrine of sin. And it's important that we get it right because sin is, is often described as, as merely missing the mark. But it is more than that. It is rebellion against the God who gave us everything, and it's rebellion that is destructive to us. Not just because God will send unrepentant sinners to hell, though of course that is true, but sin gradually destroys us from the inside out. That's the origin of sin. That's where it came from. And we see its effects all around us even today. Now let's look at uh, the direct effects of sin. This is from chapter 6 of the Confession, paragraph 2. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of body and soul. Sin costs us communion with God. It brings in spiritual death as well as begins the process of physical death, defilement of all the parts and faculties of the body and soul. Chad Van Dixhorn is helpful on this. He writes, This spiritual death began a physical death. On the day that Adam and Eve foolishly ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they died in a very real sense. It was a slow death, yes. But death and decay now entered their bodies and minds. And it was inevitable from that moment that they would one day become dust again. This walking death and decay in sin showed itself in the defilement of all our parts and faculties. All our powers, abilities, qualities, capacities are infected by sin. This penetration of sin is true of our bodily physical existence. We abuse our own bodies by the things we do and the places we go. And when God permits strength in one person, it is used to wreak havoc with the weakness of another person. And so it is that we use our hands and feet, our memories and our mouths, 
not to praise God, but to abuse others. And again, we see this every day you turn on the news. It's these kinds of things going on. Uh, 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 injustice and oppression and, and, and exercising of authority to the detriment of the good of others. And so let's read now, back in Genesis chapter 3, um, the immediate results of sin. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Pause the reading there. This is perhaps the most heartbreaking passage in the whole Bible. The sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day should have been a source of great pleasure and delight for Adam and Eve. Um, when I come home from work after a long day and my kids know that it's it's my car that's parking in the driveway and they know that it's my key that's that's turning the lock. There's usually a, a, a great shout of excitement that that daddy's home and, and, and he's here to play with us and to talk to us and to, to wrestle with us and to teach us and to make silly faces with us and to do all of the things that daddies do. And that's what I want for them. I want my presence as their father be a source of joy and comfort for my children. But that's not always the case. Sometimes, if there's been a particularly bad day, my coming home is not the source of joy for my children, but rather sorrow, because they have been disobedient, and their mother has appropriately outsourced that discipline to me to handle. And I'm sure you've all had similar experiences. And on a much larger scale, that's what's going on with Adam and Eve here. The sound of God walking in the garden, instead of running to him, they hide from him. Sin has destroyed man's relationship with his creator. Because remember, it's, it's more than the act of eating the fruit. It's the declaration that that act makes. It's the rejection of God and God's right and authority to be God. Suggesting that we ourselves are better off being our own gods. But more than that, sin has also destroyed Adam and Eve's personal relationships with each other as well as the work that they have been called to do. I'll read now from Genesis 3 beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Sin breaks our relationships with God, but it also destroys our relationship with one another. In verse 16, God tells Eve, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Again, referring back to Derek Kidner, he explains the phrase, Your desire shall be for, as, as older translations render it, for your husband, with the reciprocating, he shall rule over you, portrays a marriage relation in which control has slipped from the fully personal realm to that of instinctive urges, passive and active, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. And it's important to note that marriages can overcome this. Many do. Even, even uh, unbelievers can have, in a certain sense, a happy marriage that isn't always like this. The point of the passage, though, is that, as Kidner puts it, the pull of sin is always towards that. The, the pull of sin is always, how can I make this person, how can I make this relationship serve me, rather than how can I be a servant? Now, people are, are able to resist that, but the, left unchecked, that is now the natural inclination and the natural tendency of our hearts is to um, is to be controlling and selfish. Um, sin destroys the work that we are called to do. Again, we already read uh, verses 17 to 19. Uh, work was made to be a delight, but now it will be hard. Now, in the same way, that can be overcome to a degree. It's it's possible to enjoy your work. I personally love my job. But every now and then, even with someone who takes real joy and pleasure in their job, it can become overwhelming and it can and it, it can produce thorns and thistles no matter what you do. And we begin to see the, this process of things falling apart. And the longer uh, you, you, you live, the more you will experience this. It, not just things outside that you're to work with and relationships to the, the, that you're to manage, but even your own, your own body. To dust you will return. The longer you live, the more you will see that your body begins to fail you because sin 
destroys everything. Sin destroys everything. Its origin comes from refusing to submit to the Creator, and its effects are catastrophic destruction. And so we'll look at um, the, the rest of chapter 6 next week. But I do want to leave you with this. Even in uh, such a dark chapter as Genesis chapter 3, there is, even in the face of such heinous sin and rebellion, always there is hope in the character of God. Look at Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promise that will set up the story of the rest of the Bible. God promises there will become one born of woman that will crush the head of the serpent, and that will also be bruised in that process. And this promise is, of course, fully realized is, is the coming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People often remark about how quickly Adam fell. It only took two chapters in Genesis for mankind to fall, but notice that it only took eight verses from the time of the fall for God to make the promise of salvation. He delights in showing mercy and he is eager for restoration. Notice verse 20 uh, tells us that Adam believes this promise he believes that there will be one that will come that will crush the head of the serpent that will tread satan underneath his feet adam believes that because he names his wife <clears throat> eve the mother of all living he has hope in the in the one that will come of the woman and then in verse 21 god responds to this faith by clothing them verse 21 and the lord god made for Adam and for his wife, garments of skins, and clothe them. He covers their shame. And these same two people who committed cosmic treason, God has vowed to make a way of restoration for them, and he's taken away their shame. And now we will see next week how the effects of sin continue to spread, but so also does the message of salvation. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you uh, for your word, that it reveals truth, it casts light on the world in which we live. Lord, we pray that that light would shine forth uh, in our hearts and that it would cast out darkness. In Jesus' name, amen.